So we are going to spend all our time this, this morning in, um, in Paul's letter. Um, you know how we've been talking about how Paul's letters are like listening to half of a phone conversation? You're sitting there, uh, maybe your spouse or whoever, and they're talking, and you're trying to figure out who the other person is. Or what, they're, what, or, or what they're talking about, eh? And uh, that's a lot like Paul's letters. So the challenge in his letters is to identify who is he talking to, what's the situation there, and uh, what's going on. He's, he's, he's often in damage control mode in his letters. He's, he's tackling the issues. He's, he's addressing false ideas that are circulating in communities. And uh, Colossians is, is no exception. Uh, something notable about this letter is that he wrote this letter. I'll give you a little more context next week, but for now, I'll just point out that he wrote this letter to a congregation that actually had never met him in person. Uh, this congregation, it appears, came together under the work of a man named Epaphras, who is mentioned in verse 7. And Epaphras was part of Paul's uh, congregation planting team, I suppose you could say. Um, I've, I've tried to piece together some of, the, some of the people in this group that Paul was talking to. I gave them names, and I'm going to describe a little bit of them to you, and then we'll say, this is, prob- this is probably what Paul was saying to this person, or to this subset of people. So um, these are fictitious names. Uh, Genevieve helped me with them. I would be like, Genevieve, give me a Jewish name that starts with T. And she'd be like, uh, Tevia. I was like, okay, Tevia it is. So there's a Tevia in, uh, in the book of Colossians, evidently. There's also an Olga and uh, several other people. So uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this. I love this letter. I think this is Paul's most Messiah-centered letter. It's just so, it's Christologically rich, you could say. And uh, we're really going to, hopefully we can just look at Yeshua together and fall into a deeper awe of him and love for him also as we go through this. Um, In Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I'm saying this, why? So that no one will delude you, in other words, deceive or mislead you with persuasive arguments. So we can infer there were people in this uh, this community who who were making some really good points. They, uh, maybe they had an agenda or they had a certain ideology that they were pushing and people were saying, you know, that actually makes some sense. This guy seems like he knows what he's talking about. There were some people in that group with persuasive arguments. Um, secondly, in verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. So, okay, so did you notice that? What that means is there were people there who were in the process of being, quote, taken captive. That means there were some people in that group who had some control issues and they were taking over that community with their own agendas and with their own ideologies that they were pushing. And uh, you can infer from this verse that they weren't centered on Yeshua. He says, um, he lists a couple of them here. Philosophy, uh, human traditions, the order of this world, which can be a cultural order, a societal order, etc., rather than according to Messiah. So there's all of these ideas and traditions and agendas that were being pushed in this community. And Paul was saying, this is replacing Yeshua. People are taking over your group. Don't let it happen. So uh, we're, going to, we're going to profile some of those people. We're going to kind of give them a face and a name and 
Um, hopefully we can have fun with this. I had a lot of fun preparing this talk yesterday. It took about twice as long as it usually does. So, um, firstly, he, he talks about the, some people who are getting into angel worship. These people were really into angels, like angelology was their thing. So, um, I'd, I'd like you to meet Angela the Angel Lady, alright? Angela is really spiritual. She's, she's obsessed with angelic and demonic entities. Um, Angela sees angels and demons everywhere. She's always talking about these dreams and visions and spiritual experiences that she's had. She likes to speculate about angels' names. Um, she's really been interested lately in the Jewish tradition of angels. It's names like Uriel and Sandalpon and all of these other angels' names in the Talmud. Angela's really into this stuff, hey? Um, Angela frequently drops these little suggestions that her fellow believers aren't really spiritually mature until they have spiritual experiences on the level that she has. The notable thing, though, is about Angela the Angel Lady, she never talks about Yeshua. And you actually kind of wonder if she even knows him. She talks a lot about angels and demons and spiritual experiences, but Yeshua's not generally a big focus in her life. And this is what Paul has to say to Angela and, um, and her, her, her friends in that congregation. Firstly, okay, he, I'm, I'm going to point something out here. This is what he's going to do every time. He says, this is, this is your focus, this is your obsession, and then he brings it to Yeshua. And he says, look at Yeshua. This is who Yeshua is. This is what the Father does through Yeshua. So um, we're, we're going to take note of that because each of us in this room are on a journey. We're on a journey from being self-centered to Yeshua-centered. We're on a journey from being obsessed with this or having that cause or whatever, often they're idols in our lives, to being Yeshua-oriented. Uh, in the words of John, the immerser, we are on a journey in which he is increasing and we are decreasing. So I think that's the heart of this letter. You tell me as we go through it. He points out in Colossians 1.18 that Yeshua is the head of the body. The Ecclesia local congregation. Alright? Yeshua is the head. Not angels. Yeshua. Certainly not demons. Yeshua. He goes on in uh, chapter 2 verse 10 to say that Yeshua is the head over all rule and all authority. Did you get that? He didn't say some, he said all. So maybe if Angela was giving a little too much credit to demonic activity, or maybe giving, giving angels a little too much of the spotlight, Paul was saying Yeshua is the head over all rule and authority. And I'd like to break down those two words for you. Uh, rule is the Greek word arche, from which we get archangel, and overarching. You're familiar with those two words. So that's a ruler. Someone who's over an area or a, a set of people. Um, authority is the Greek word exousia. Everybody say exousia. And I'll give you some examples of him using this word in other epistles. Uh, in Ephesians 2.2, he says that we previously lived our lives according to the dictates of the prince of the power, the exousia of the air. In uh, Ephesians 6.12, he says our struggle, did you know that we have a struggle? We are involved in a struggle. It is a cosmic struggle on a global level. Our struggle is against the powers, the exousia, and the world rulers of this present darkness. 
in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 he says or the father rescued us from the domain the exosia of darkness so you get this idea that when he's talking about exosia off it's in reference to spiritual forces of darkness and uh, demonic control centers over, over, over regions or people groups um, in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 he says that Yeshua disarmed or divested the authorities that is the exosia after triumphing over them and making a public display of them wow so also this word exosia it's used quite a few times in the book of Revelation um, in reference to death hell the mythic dragon and the metaphorical beast all of these all of these guys or entities have exosia and it brings death it wreaks it wreaks havoc on on nations however notably in the book of revelation do 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 a study on this i encourage you almost every time it says that these entities have exosia it says it was given to them given to them by who it was given to them by the king of kings the ultimate king yeshua uh, we can infer that from this passage that yeshua says where the paul says yeshua is the head of all rule and all exousia um, we can also infer that from the red letters at the end of the book of matthew there yeshua says all exousia all authority in the heavens and on planet earth has been given to me so eternal and temporal authority secular and spiritual all of it has been given to Yeshua after it was divested from whoever it was that previously had it and what was what was what's our response to the knowledge that Yeshua is the head over all powers that Yeshua has all authority in his hand the end of the book of Matthew says therefore go we have a mission as a people the fact that we know that Yeshua is in charge that he is authorized moves us to go into the nations to preach the gospel we have been entrusted with a message to make disciples for the master to immerse them in his name as he commanded us and to teach them to do all the stuff that Yeshua taught us yeah so on a practical level realizing that Yeshua has all authority moves us to accomplish our mission to go into the nations to be indomitable to be fearless to not fear death to not fear physical harm because we know who's in charge that was Paul's response to Angela the angel lady who was giving just a little too much credit to angelic and demonic activity uh, second this is their second figure I'd like you to meet Percival the political activist now this is exceptionally fitting of course because we're on the cusp of a national election and it's all over the media so uh, Percival the political activist Percival gets really riled up right before the elections like this is this is his time right uh, Percival is very involved in his political party he's always touting it um, sometimes you actually wonder if Percival's faith in Yeshua isn't just a bit of an accessory to his political cause it's hard to tell sometimes Percival thinks that his uh, political party is the kingdom of God on earth <laughs> and this is this is this is Paul's response to Percival Colossians 1 16 here's the truth everything existing in the spiritual dimensions that is to say in the heavens and in the physical dimensions that is to say on the earth was created for Yeshua 
everything existing was created for our master's pleasure, for his enjoyment. Everything in the universe was created for him to rule over and govern. There is no being, there is no dimension of existence that is outside the realm of Yeshua's kingdom. He is the, uh, I'll teach you a phrase in Hebrew, the Melech Hamlachim, the King of Kings. The King of Kings is a Hebrew idiom for the ultimate king, right? And that's Yeshua. Um, notably, if you have a quick look at Colossians 1.16, it says that he lists things that, that are created for the Master, visible and invisible things. And the first one he lists are thrones. And then he, all lists, he also lists dominion, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Did you notice that? So these are, these are governmental terms. The, this is a very political statement. All, all, every throne is created ultimately for Yeshua. And it was created through him. Think about that. What, what is a throne? A throne is a power center, right? Um, whoever sits on the throne is the one who calls the shots, who says how it's going to be. Uh, in ancient times, a king would sit on the throne over a nation of people and over a geographical region, right? So that's the idea of a throne. Um, we could definitely say that there's a throne or over every nation today. Maybe it's not a visible throne. Maybe there's an invisible throne. Maybe it's a power center. Could it be that there are power centers, spiritually speaking, over Prince Albert? Could it be that there's a throne over our country? Could it be that whoever it is that's controlling that throne is ultimately the one who's able to legislate things like um, legislation that would permit Canada's youngest citizens to be murdered before they're even born. Could it be? I think so. So Paul's response to Percival the political activist is, there are thrones in this universe and every one of them was created for Yeshua. He is the rightful heir to every throne in this planet and he is going to receive them because uh, he has his father on his side and uh, if you read the end of the book, Abba wins. That's Paul's response. So we, we uh, I'll, I'll remind you that we as a community, our name is Crown of Messiah because we exist as a community of believers to see Yeshua crowned king, to see him enthroned over our city, over our province and country. Um, Paul's second truth for Percival is in Colossians 1.13. He says... He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, we have national darkness in Canada. He, he talks about this domain of darkness concept. We have, we have domains of darkness in our country, in the media, in the, uh, in, in, uh, on the different tiers of the political system, in the educational world. Um, what would be some expressions of our national darkness? Uh, breakdown of families, uh, government corruption, child prostitution and abuse, uh, cold, dead religion. These are all expressions of national darkness. And what Paul is saying here is, first of all, these things are not going to be dealt with on a physical level through government funding, through getting the right political party into office. These things are only going to be dealt with through the power of God that is demonstrated through the gospel. In other words, societal redemption on every level only comes when people meet Yeshua. 
So that, that's Paul's response to Percival. Does that mean that we shouldn't be involved, politically speaking? Does that mean we shouldn't be vocal? No. I, I believe in being very vocal. Um, I, I believe in being politically involved. But it's not our cause. Yeshua is our cause, right? Our lives do not revolve around our political party or a political agenda. They revolve around the Redeemer. Okay, um, next guy I'd like to introduce you to is uh, Philip the Philosopher. Uh, Philip isn't satisfied with the Bible. He's not satisfied with the biblical worldview. Uh, Philip has a background in philosophy. He was actually on a search for quite a few years before he uh, met a disciple of Yeshua in Colossae and, uh, and became a believer. In fact, he used to wear the, uh, the traditional philosopher's garb. He was a professional philosopher, so he would basically sit around all day and talk about really heady things and then go home and eat his bread crusts in his little apartment because that's all he could afford because all he did was talk all day with other people. That's Philip, okay? So he's come a long way. Sometimes he wears his garb when he goes out and shares his faith with other philosophers. Um, he, he got a job and he's kind of upgraded from his tiny apartment so you know Philip's on the up and up but you know he still he still he still doesn't feel that the scriptures are enough he, he always has to bring Plato into everything he always has to quote Aristotle um, Philip has a problem with weighing the truth of scripture on the scales of Greek logic and if it doesn't seem to line up from a from a philosophical perspective then he has a really hard time accepting what the Bible says that, that that's Philip um, Philip thrives on ontological and cosmological discussions he loves talking about existence in general and how did everything come into existence Philip has a brain the size of a soccer ball I don't know if you knew that but Philip but um but I'm um, actually Greeks played soccer yeah and um, Philip's totally controlled by his brain still you know so he's definitely he's definitely um, he's, he's he's on the journey and you know what? Philip can be really persuasive. He's very well-spoken. He's eloquent. Uh, people in the Greek culture look up to that. And here's Paul's response to Philip. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Philip, here's the truth. Messiah is God's mystery. What does that mean? It means a couple things. Firstly, Messiah isn't a series of facts to be mentally comprehended. Yeshua isn't information to master. Yeshua is a person, and He is a mystery to be experienced. He is a person to be known personally. He goes on to say that all knowledge, all true gnosis is in Yeshua. All wisdom is concealed in His person. Don't you like that? There's something about our Savior that's a mystery. There's some, there are things that are concealed in Him. And when we get to know Him, he shares those treasures with you. Uh, the second truth that Paul has for Philip the philosopher is in uh, 116. Through Yeshua, Philip, everything existing in the spiritual and physical dimensions was created. So there is your, there is your biblical cosmology. There is your biblical ontology. Everything existing was created through Yeshua. Um, that, that concept of through, I'll, I'll, I'll make it a little more concrete for you. In Hebrew, you say in the hand of, bayad. Everybody say, bayad. Ba is in, and yad is the hand of, eh? So bayad, in the hand of, that means through. So for instance, um, we, we say that the Torah was given through Moses, right? And in Hebrew, that says the Torah was given bayad Moshe. It was given 
through the hands of Moses. The, the concept there is through the agency of someone. Okay, So Moses was God's agent through which he gave the Torah to the nation of Israel. Yeshua, Paul is saying here, was the creator's agent through which he generated the cosmos, through which he created everything that can be seen, through which he designed the chromosomes in gophers and, and made butterflies. I mean, that is, that is, that is a mind-bogglingly massive Christology when you think about it. And, and that is Paul's response to Philip. So, you know, Paul can talk on a philosophical level. He can talk on a cosmological level. I, I, uh, I like that. Okay, then he also goes on to say, not only in terms of the uh, initial genesis of the cosmos, but in terms of their upkeep, in terms of their ongoing existence, he says in Colossians 1.17, everything is held together in Yeshua. Everything subsists in him or consists by him, as a couple of different translations render that. Um, I'm going to see how much time we have at the end. If we have a couple of minutes, I'm going to read to you a section from Wikipedia on how atoms are held together. It's called strong interaction, and it's fascinating because it really does point to Yeshua if you approach it from that viewpoint. Okay, and it introduce you to two more guys here. Uh, their names both start with T because they're the traditions guys. One of them is from a Gentile background and his name is Trophimus. Everybody say Trophimus. Yeah, and Tevia is the other one, Tevia. Um, Trophimus, Trophus, he's very creative. He makes up all kinds of traditions. And then after they do those traditions twice, he insists that they always do it that way. Um, recently, Trophimus started coming up with some really novel ideas, actually, like um, using pictures of Jesus in their worship times to help them focus on him a little better. Um, also, um, maybe um, using some statues of the Old Testament heroes and the saints in their uh, houses of worship. These are a couple ideas Trophimus had. He had a lot of other ideas, just traditions that he was making up. Um, one of them, you know, is kind of this period of fasting or abstinence from things before um, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. He wanted to introduce Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I don't know. Yeshua never talked about Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Uh, it's not actually in the New Testament. But these are some ideas that Trophimus was coming up with. Really creative guy. He was kind of making up all these interesting forms of worship, right? And... Um, Anyway, here, here, here's, um, here's one of Paul's responses to Trophimus. In uh, Colossians 1.15, he says, Trophimus, Yeshua is the image of the invisible God. So, Trophimus, we don't need images. We don't need icons in our house of worship because we have Yeshua. And he is the image. Uh, the Greek word for image is icon. It means a likeness or a representation. Uh, I'll give you an example of this word. In Matthew 22, when they were trying to trap Yeshua, he said, here, g give me a coin. And uh, they gave him a coin. And he said, so guys, like, whose icon is on this coin? Whose image is this? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. Caesar's icon was on the coin. It's the same word. So Paul is saying Yeshua is the icon of God. Yeshua is the vis visible image of the invisible creator. I'll give you a couple examples. I have some Canadian money here. Um, our, our friends in the States who are joining us on the live stream will particularly enjoy, enjoy seeing our rainbow money. So whose icon is on the $10 bill? Let's see how well you know your, your uh, Canadian 
uh, money, seeing as how you're not... Yes, that's right. See, there's, a, there's an icon of Prime Minister MacDonald um, on the 10. Who is on the 20? The mother of the bride, or no, I guess the mother of the groom, actually, sorry. You can tell I didn't watch the royal wedding. Um, who's on the 50? Mm -mm. That's right, Prime Minister M Mackenzie King. Who's on the 20? I mean, on the 100? Another guy you've never seen. What's that? Yeah, <laughs> you don't see too many of them. Sir Robert Borden, Prime Minister from 1911 to 1920. I can tell none of you were uh, were uh, were reading the news in the in the tens, and um, and I'm not going to be giving these away after. Um, I'll show you a couple of coins too, because this is an example of icons, right? This is an example of images. Um, here's a toonie. Whose image is on the toonie? That's the Queen Mother, excuse me. There's a polar bear on the other side. You need to go to your optometrist, sorry. No, I'm just joking. We're having, we're having fun with this. Um, Whose uh, who's, uh, who's icon is on the loony? The Queen Mother. And actually, this is a kind of a cool dollar. Uh, Terry Fox is on, the, on this side of this loony, on the other side. And then, um, yeah, another icon. And who, whose icon is on the quarter? We really love our Queen, don't we? Yeah, it's interesting. And on the other side is? The... It's a, it's, it's a caribou or reindeer, yep. Sorry, guys. Yep. So anyway, those are, those are some examples of icons, right? And what Paul is saying to Trophimus, who wants to introduce the use of icons and statues in their forms of worship, is we already have the ultimate icon, and his name is Yeshua. And uh, he is sufficient. Interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation, the icon of the beast figures very prominently. The image of the beast is the icon of the beast. Okay, so uh, Trophimus is Jewish buddy, Tevia. Tevia is from a traditional Jewish background. Tevia insists that the only way to do the Torah is his way, which of course is the traditional to a T way. Tevia, his favorite expression is not just Torah, Torah and Talmud. That's, that's Tevye's axiom. Um, Tevye once freaked out because on Saturday evening at the close of Shabbat, they didn't have any spices for Havdalah. In, 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 in Tevye's worldview, you cannot do Shabbat unless you do it the traditional way. Tradition! Hey, I never thought of that. That lines up really well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here, here's the problem though. Tevye doesn't just, he doesn't just do the Torah, the traditional way, as an expression of his personal devotion to Messiah. Tevye spends a lot of time critiquing everyone else's way of doing Torah too. He critiques people's level of kosher, he critiques how they do Shabbat, he critiques how people do God's appointed times. Tevye has a bit of a problem with this. And um, Paul has a couple things to say to Tevye in this letter. Uh, in 2.17 he says, actually he doesn't say this to Tevye, he says it to this community. He says, guys, don't let Tevye criticize and judge you for your level of kosher and for how you do Shabbat and the festivals. Don't let him judge you for that. Let me ask you, why didn't Paul just tell Tevye not to judge? 
My opinion is, often if you have a person who is hypercritical or like exceptionally judgmental, they're often usually also very self-righteous, they're entrenched in their views, and they're always right. And it could be that that's the reason that Paul didn't bother to say, Tevya, stop it. Paul said, okay guys, as a community, don't let anyone judge you for this stuff. So put your foot down and give Tevya an, a loving ultimatum. Either shut up or ship out. It's kind of the idea of what Paul was saying to this community. You need to stand up and you need to not let people treat you like that as a congregation. That's my opinion. Um, Paul also told Tevye one other thing. He went on to point out that the, the dietary laws and the weekly Shabbat and when we celebrate Rosh Chodesh and, uh, and the appointed times, these are shadows. In other words, they're images, they're outlines, and Yeshua is the body. And interestingly enough, this is notable, he says they're shadows of things to come. Now there are some translations that are a little, little uh, loose with this and they'll say they're shadows of things that were to come. That is an incorrect translation. Paul says the festivals are shadows of things that are coming. In other words, they, they are very prophetic. So if you want to have a prophetic edge in the body of Messiah today, start doing Shabbat, connect with the themes of the festivals, track with God's calendar, the calendar of Israel, and you will have that cutting edge. You will understand uh, prophetic realities in, in, in a fuller way. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this, okay? Uh, Genevieve, could I, could, I, could I get you to volunteer here for a second? I want to give you an example of uh, maybe what Paul was trying to kind of um, get across to Tevya. So maybe Genevieve, you could just like stand right here for me. You can just stand right here. And um, this is good, just right there. Okay, so um, we're indoors, so here, just come a little bit closer. Perfect. That's great, thank you. Okay, so we're indoors, so we don't really have a shadow. It would be nice if Genevieve had a shadow, so we're just going to pretend that Genevieve has a shadow to about right there, okay? Now, now this, is, uh, this, is the, this is the idea here. Tell me, tell me how this would look. You know, if I was like, Genevieve, I'm so happy to see you. Oh, my best friend. Oh, hug, hug, mwah, mwah. kiss, kiss. Like... Can you imagine if I was so enamored with Genevieve's shadow that I forgot about the person who cast it? If I was so focused on Genevieve, her outline, her silhouette... Okay, I'll give you a hug. Oh. Oh. If, I was so, if I was so focused on her silhouette that I forgot about the person standing right there casting the shadow? I mean, that's hilarious. Hey, thanks, Genevieve. You can, you can, you can sit down. And, I mean, okay... I, I really do adore my wife, and I almost would like just follow her around and kiss her shadow, but I know, but she's there, so that's, that's better, you know? But, so, okay, so here's, here, that's the analogy though, right? It's like, the, the Moedim are wonderful, and we should be celebrating them because they point to Yeshua, and because as our example, he did them, but it's important not to get, so, get enamored with the Moedim in and of themselves. It's important to get enamored with the person to whom they point. Yeah, they're about Yeshua. So in my opinion, if we celebrate a festival and we're not connecting with the Master, we're not having fellowship with Him in that appointed time, if we're not like seeing how it points to Him, then we're, we're, we're largely missing the point and we're kissing the shadow and stuff. Oh, thank you. I agree. I mean, we designed that Hebrew course to really exalt Yeshua 
you know, you'll, you'll have to watch it, but there, we go through the Hebrew letters and I give a blurb, sometimes a sizable blurb, about how this letter points to Messiah. Tells us something about Messiah's essence and, and his mission, yeah. Um, okay, I want to introduce you to Tevye's brother. His brother's name is Yossi. Everybody say Yossi. That's short for Joseph or Yosef, right? Hey, Yossi, he constantly, he, he really is proud of his Jewishness. He loves being Jewish, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, Yossi is constantly talking about how he's Jewish, and also about how all of these other people in the Colossian congregation aren't. Um, when they have a new person that walks into their assembly, Yossi makes a beeline for him, and first thing he'll ask them is if they're Jewish or not. Um, now that's Yossi for you. You get the impression that Yossi doesn't really think that all these non-Jewish Colossian disciples are really part of God's covenant people because they were never circumcised. They never went through any official conversion process. They're not halachically Jewish. Although Yossi, Yossi's never really out and said it, it seems that in his eyes, all these Greeks aren't really part of Israel. They're not really family. Yossi's even suggested things like, well, tell you what, why don't we have two congregations in Colossian? One can be for the Christian Gentiles, and then the other can be for us Messianic Jews. And in our Messianic Jewish congregation, only Jews who have a Jewish mama will be allowed to be elders or to have a full vote at the annual general meetings and things like that. Okay, that that's kind of Yossi for you in, in, in Colossae. And Paul has a couple of words for Yossi. Colossians 2.10, he says, Yossi, these believers are complete in Yeshua. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to convert to Judaism. They are complete right now in Yeshua. That's the first thing he says. In Col he goes on to say in Colossians 2, verse, verses 11 and onward, Yossi, these believers are circumcised in Yeshua. They have circumcised status. They're full members of the family. Let's look at that for a second. Colossians chapter 2. I want to point something out to you here. He says, Yossi, in verse 11, In Him, these brothers and sisters were circumcised. But it wasn't a physical circumcision. It was something deeper. And then in verse 12, he goes on to say, it's pictured by immersion in water. I, I, I want to I look at that with you uh, for a moment. Notice that very clearly. Paul places circumcision, which is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and immersion in water, baptism, on the same level. He's, he's drawing a correlation here, eh? What that tells us is, if there is any sign that could be pointed to as the sign of the new covenant, it is immersion in water. Just as circumcision is the sign of covenant membership with, uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, part of Abraham's family, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, is your God, immersion in water is the sign of the new covenant, saying that we are members of the new covenant, that we have accepted the fact that Yeshua shed his blood on our behalf, that we are forgiven, and that we have called him Master, Lord. So, frankly, I don't, know who, I don't know who here has made the choice to be immersed in water or not. For all I know, you guys might all be. I don't know who's joining us on the live stream either. But I just, I just want to point out that when, 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 when a man would reject circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant, that man was not just rejecting a physical sign. He was rejecting the Abrahamic covenant itself. And he was rejecting 
the one who gave that Abrahamic covenant, i.e. Yahweh. Uh, correlatively, could it be, and I believe this is true, when we know that Yeshua has commanded us to be immersed in water, and we reject that commandment, we're not just rejecting a physical sign, we're rejecting the new covenant that it represents, and we're rejecting Yeshua, who gave us the command to be immersed in water as a sign of our membership in the new covenant. That's basically what Paul is saying there. Um, so I don't, know whether, I don't know whether you're all immersed or not, but if you're not, I've, I strongly encourage you to be immersed in water. Make that choice. My grandfather has been a believer for decades. He's, he's a solid man of faith. It brings tears to my eyes when he prays, but he, he, had, never be, he had never made the choice to be immersed in water. And I, I was concerned for him in my teens. I was like, how, how come you... You know what, how come you haven't been immersed in water? Because it wasn't, commu- it was, frankly, it wasn't communicating good things to me. You know, it's like if you claim to be a Bible believer and follow Yeshua, and Yeshua said to be immersed, then you need to do that. So I was asking him, and he said, well, you know, I just never really saw the necessity, and I don't know what people would think of me. You know how it is in small town culture, right? Everybody talks about everybody, and basically all of your actions are blown out of proportion, and... Uh, and investigated under a magnifying glass because you have to have something to talk about in small towns. So anyway, maybe it was that. But I was concerned for my grandpa. So I just, I just, you know, I was like, well, you know, I, I still really respect him. He's a solid man of faith. And I, I did pray for him. Though. I'm like, Father, you know, if you want him to be baptized, please, please inspire him to, to, to take that step. And it was really touching. Was it last year, Genevieve? Last year or two years ago? Yeah, it was just, it was just in the last two years. He was like 83 and he made the decision to go into the waters of immersion as a profession of his faith in Yeshua and in obedience to the command. So you know what? My grandpa was 83 when he got baptized. So you're never too old and it's never too late. I was so proud of him. And you know, it's actually cool. He had a friend who's also a believer who was about his age who had never been baptized. So they did it together. Two men in their 80s who, who, who were baptized, you know, at the same time. Yeah, Joshua and Caleb taking the mountain in their 80s, totally. So anyway, that's, that's just that's something notable. I'll, I'll talk for a moment here too about um, modes of baptism. You know, in, in, in the Catholic and many Orthodox churches, um, it, people are baptized as infants. That's called paedo-baptism. Everybody say paedo-baptism. And um, they're generally sprinkled as the, uh, as the mode of baptism. I, I, I suggest to you that that isn't scripturally legitimate for a couple reasons. Uh, in that scenario, people are baptized into a church. So as an infant, you're baptized into the Roman Catholic Church, into the Orthodox, ethnic, whatever church, etc. You're not baptized into Yeshua. And uh, often you'll have people who are infant baptized and they grow up to demonstrate very clearly that they were not baptized into Yeshua. But they're still members of the church because they were baptized into the church. All right. So that's truth number one. If you're infant baptized into a church, you know maybe that was something valuable to you, to your family. But you need to be baptized as an adult or as a child who's able to make a full conscious decision towards that end that you are being immersed into Yeshua as a sign of your personal faith in Him for salvation. Uh, number two, I, I don't believe that sprinkling is scriptural, and uh, I'll explain that to you also. Um, Paul says in this verse that you were buried with Him in baptism. Sprinkling isn't a picture of burial. You have to, you have to get dunked fully. 
to really have that as a picture of being buried with the Messiah. In the Jewish world of that time, and we have to remember that the New Testament was written by Jews, in that for the first decade, faith in Yeshua was only professed by Jews. In, in, in that context, baptism meant full immersion in water. All the time. That's simply what it meant. Um, also, even in the Greek term for baptism, baptismos, um, it's the same word used for taking a piece of cloth and dyeing the cloth by fully immersing it in the, the dye. You can't dye a piece of cloth by sprinkling it, unless you want a really interesting garment that is mottled, um, spattered, and spackled. So that, that, that's the Greek word also. So the Greek word means immersion in water. Um, of course, the Jewish context also suggests that. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll, leave you, I'll leave you with that. It's Yeshua's command to be immersed in water. If we truly have faith in Him, and He is our Master, then we will obey Him in that. Or it could be that maybe we don't have the faith that we would like to think we have. Faith and works, right? The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Can one introduce you to uh, Yossi and Tevia, these two Jewish brothers? They have, a, they have a friend. His name is Zerubbabel. Yeah, Zerubbabel. And uh, Zerubbabel's from Israel, actually. He went to Yeshiva when he was growing up. And... Um, He's very learned in the Torah. I mean, you have to admire Zerubbabel's Torah scholarship. People in Colossae really appreciate him because he'll give the background to a passage. Um, he'll, uh, he, he, he's passionate about the Torah. He encourages people to keep the Torah in the strongest terms. Um, you know, Zerubbabel, most of his sentences begins with, well, the Torah tells us. And uh, then he'll say whatever it is that he has to say. But Zerubbabel gets very quiet when the topic of conversation turns to Yeshua. In fact, Zerubbabel seems to be uncomfortable when Yeshua is the center of attention for too long. He downright squirms when people talk about worshipping Yeshua. It's clear to see that there's something in Zerubbabel that doesn't like it when Yeshua is exalted. So you know, Zerubbabel is all about the Torah. He's passionate about the Torah. But when it comes to Yeshua being exalted... I don't know. You just watch him and he kind of hunkers down a little bit, you know? Here, here, here's, here's, Paul's, um, here, here's what Paul has to say to Zerubbabel in Colossians 1.17. Here's the truth. Yeshua existed before everything that's in existence right now. In verse 18, he says, Yeshua is the beginning. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, Yeshua is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. In verse 18. He's speaking in very high terms about Yeshua being the first, about his pre-existence. Uh, this whole firstborn concept, that's a Hebraic concept, it can only be understood in a Torah context, actually. Um, in verse 18, Paul says why the Father chose for Yeshua to be the firstborn from the dead and the firstborn of all creation. He says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Did he say Yeshua would come to have first place in some things? Let me hear you say everything. Yeah. Everything. So Yeshua is intended by the Father to have first place in everything. We call that the doctrine of his preeminence. Everybody say preeminence. preeminence. What it means is Yeshua comes first. Uh, whether it be your marriage or your career choices, or your conversations every day. Everything that you think about, 
the doctrine of Messiah's preeminence is very relevant. Yeshua is first. Let him have first place in your life. You know what? That's something that I would love to grow into. Yeshua is not first in all of my conversations. Far from it. Yeshua is not, doesn't always have first place in my thoughts. That's for sure. But I want him to. You know, I, I pray regularly. Father, let your spirit just exalt Yeshua in me. You know, let Yeshua, let, let Yeshua be exalted in my thoughts. We can, we can pray that regularly. I, I guarantee you that's a prayer that the Father will be delighted to answer. Um, also, this whole thing about Zerubbabel getting really uncomfortable when, you, when people talk about worshipping Yeshua. Um, Paul points out to Zerubbabel in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Zerubbabel, Yeshua is the embodiment of God. Yeshua is God in the flesh. He is deity incarnate. He, he also uh, underscores that concept in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Full deity resides in the physical person of Yeshua. Yeah. And if that was a standalone passage, maybe you could say, well, maybe that's not what Paul said, but as we've been going through Paul's letters, we've also seen quite a few other places where, where um, the early believers had no problem with calling Yeshua Yahweh himself as the Son and worshiping him. Um, going on, Zerubbabel, you know, this guy, he really has some stuff to work through. Paul has some more stuff to say to Zerubbabel. Um, Zerubbabel has actually had the chutzpah to uh, suggest that the Jewish people don't really need Yeshua. You kind of get the impression that Zerubbabel thinks that the Torah is where it's at and Yeshua is kind of a... An optional accessory on the side. As Zerubbabel, he suggested in conversations, you know, maybe, maybe the new covenant is good enough for Israel. Maybe that's all that Israel maybe really needs. Zerubbabel, another one of his suggestions uh, in the Colossian congregation was, well, you know, maybe these Jewish people believe in Yeshua, but they don't really even know that they believe in him. You know, they believe the Torah and, the, and Yeshua gave the Torah, so maybe, uh, maybe just trying to do the Torah means they believe in Yeshua. I mean, you know, aside from the fact that they curse, that they hate Yeshua's, um, they hate the Yeshua's disciples in Colossae, aside from the fact that they kicked them out of the synagogue, aside from the fact that, uh, I'm being a little anachronistic here, but aside from the fact that they introduced the 19th blessing and the traditional 18th blessings that, that cursed Yeshuaism, that cursed the sect of the Nazarenes, the Yeshua believers every day. I don't know, aside from all those things, maybe they really do believe in Yeshua and they just don't know it. Maybe? Hmm? Uh, Zerubbabel is kind of tossing some of these ideas around, okay? Um, it, it, it's obvious that Zerubbabel has never read the Gospels and never read the book of Acts. Because if he ever read the Gospels and Acts, which actually I mean, probably hadn't been written yet, maybe Mark, but if he'd read the Gospel of John, he would have read Yeshua saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He would have read, read Yeshua saying things like, those who honor the Son honor the Father. And you can't honor the Father unless you honor the Son. The Father has given the Son all authority to give eternal life to whomever He desires. So that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. You know, Zerubbabel, if he'd read the Gospel of John, he would have read passages like that. Uh, if he read the book of Acts, he, read, he would have read about, about Peter and John in the temple preaching to thousands of Jews and saying, there is no salvation outside of the name of Yeshua. And you know what? It's, it's not our place to judge who's going to be in Yeshua's eternal kingdom. I'm not here to do that. But it is our job to preach the Gospel. And the Gospel is that Yeshua is the way 
Yeshua is the way to the Father, and there isn't any salvation outside of him. Yeah, Here, here's what Paul has to say to, Zoo, uh, to Zerubbabel on this issue. In um, Colossians 1.20 he says, Zerubbabel, here's the truth, through Yeshua and his blood that was shed at the cross, all of creation is reconciled to the Creator, and it's only through Yeshua that we experience a relational status of shalom with God. So you can, pre- you can play religion, you can try your best to do His will, but without His regenerative power, without the Spirit of Yeshua, you may actually be His enemy and not even know it. Shaul was a case in point. His Torah observance was flawless. He ate more kosher than you or I will ever eat. He was very zealous. And he also literally murdered Yeshua's people. He persecuted the very giver of the Torah. So maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe that's something that Paul was addressing with Zerubbabel in this letter. Okay, I'm going to give you three more people here in rapid fire, and then I'll give you a couple of general statements that Paul was making. Um, Paul had talked about how there were people in the Colossian congregation that were, they were like beginning to control the thing, and one of the things they were pushing was this world's order. That could include traditional Roman societal order, which would include state high of uh, free, free person or slave. That could include um, cultural order, ways of doing things, what's proper and not proper. And uh, I, I, I'll introduce you to, uh, to Olga, the order freak. Uh, o- Olga's obsessed with propriety and conforming to the culture around them. Olga continually insists that the order of Greco-Roman society is divinely ordained and must be followed to the letter. And of course, she has some missional reasons for it too that she likes to give. Olga refuses to eat at the same table as the brothers and sisters who are slaves, according to Roman social class. Okay, so that's Olga. Um, I also want to introduce you to, this is one of my favorites, Fasting Frank. Fasting Frank is really into, uh, he's, he's an ascetic. He's really into self-mortification. Um, it seems like Frank is always fasting. He almost never eats desserts because he's trying to deny himself physical pleasures to get control of his, um, his physical impulses. Um, part of Frank's morning devotions is to get up, get up and beat himself with a pool noodle every morning. Um, Paul, uh, what's his name here? Fasting Frank, he also, he wears a rubber band around his wrist. Every time he accidentally looks at a woman lustfully, he pulls that thing back and he gives it a good snap. And it's, oh, poor guy. I mean, he's skinny. He's, you know, he's, he's really got a lot of red marks on his wrist most of the time. And everybody feels feels pretty bad for Frank. Um, Last year at the annual general meeting, Frank was the guy who proposed that all future pastors remain celibate so that they could better focus on spiritual matters. That actually got him shouted right out of the building. Um, Yeah. So that's that's fasting Frank for you. And then um, our our third and final uh, person in this lineup is depressed Damon. Uh, Damon is trying so hard to be humble. Uh, as a result, Damon spends most of his time brooding about how bad he is. He's really self-focused in his desire to make himself humble. Always focusing on his faults and his problems and every little thing. Um, probably a melancholic personality type. Um, and unfortunately, Damon's constant self-criticism often spills over into criticism of everyone around him, too. It's a problem. He kind of treats everyone around him the way he treats himself. 
Um, not surprisingly, uh, nobody really asks Damon how he's doing anymore because they just can't take it. Um, Damon is the city of Colossi's humblest egotist. So those are the, our last three characters. Olga the Orator Freak, Fasting Frank, and Depressed Damon. And uh, this, is, um, this is Paul's response to, to our three friends, Olga, Frank, and Damon, and also to all our other friends in the Colossian congregation that we just met, that have all of these obsessions and, and um, causes and things that they're constantly pushing that don't have Yeshua at the center of them. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, We proclaim Yeshua. We preach Him. We don't preach all these causes. We don't preach all of these ideologies. We don't preach all of these traditions. We preach Yeshua. We are all about Him. And then, in the same context, he says, Colossians 1, 27, and He's in you. And He's our hope of glory. Not self-mortification, not trying to be humble, not political activism, not whatever it is. Yeshua is our hope. And that's why we preach Him. And I'm really happy right now. I'm not mad, just so you know. <laughs> Genevieve said, when she was growing up, um, she went to a Pentecostal church, and the pastor was one of those like old-style southern preachers who would just, he, he spent half his time shouting, right? And Genevieve always, Genevieve was scared of him. Genevieve thought he was mad. She was like, we're going to go to church, and the guy's going to shout at us because he's mad. I don't know what he's mad about. Anyway, um, but I just, let's remember that. Okay, yeah, I'll answer that. So Dee's question is, um, if there's a pastor who says that Israel can be an idol if you maybe pray for Israel or have too much of a focus on Israel. Um, my response would be he clearly hasn't read Romans 9 to 11. Because in Romans 9 to 11, it's very clear that the Father has a future plan for Israel, that we, if we are believers from the nations, need to be humble and acknowledge that the covenants with Israel still stand and that certain things belong to Israel by birthright, including the covenants, the promises, the glory, the giving of the Torah, the temple worship system. That's what Paul said. So Israel is part of the picture. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm saying this person obviously hasn't read you know, along the lines of Yeshua asking the Pharisees who had memorized the whole Hebrew Bible, haven't you read about this passage? Because, you know, often we'll read Scripture, but we'll read it through our lenses, our cultural lenses, our own biased lenses, and we'll gloss over verses, and we won't come to grips with those verses. We won't factor them into our theology. And Yeshua's reply to us in situations like that is, what about this chapter? Have you ever read this verse? So that would, that, would be, that would be my response. You know, it is possible though, it is possible to have a fetish with Israel and to not be Yeshua-centered. Absolutely. I'll give you a couple more things that Paul has to say about our relationship to the Master. In these chapters, um, in Colossians 2 verse 6, he says, walk in Yeshua. Now, the, the Hebrew word for walk is halacha. Or, or halach, actually. Everybody say halach. And uh, your walk is your halakha. Everybody say halakha. Yeah. So what that means is like, you know how people talk about their, their, their talk and their walk, right? 
That's kind of the same idea in Hebrew. Your halacha is your walk, and it's how you apply the Bible to your life, how you do the Torah. So um, what, what, what Shaul is saying here, what I get out of it, is um, do Torah in the parameters of your faith in Yeshua. Every mitzvah that you do, do it in relationship with the Master. Let, him, let it be all about Him and your, your love with Him. So you know how you apply the written Word of God to your lifestyle, to uh, the days that you take off, to you, uh, your congregational life, family relationships, business decisions, whatever it can be. Whenever you can apply His Word to your life, do that in Yeshua. Do that in relationship with Him. Uh, in 2 verse 7, he, uh, he encourages the Colossian community to be rooted in Yeshua. So he uses a horticultural analogy. If you're a tree, or if you're a potted plant, or whatever, put your roots down in Him, and you're going to be solid. Um, in 2 verse 19, he, uh, he says... Okay, he's he's he. It's right after he lists all of these, all of these. Um, he lists all these people in the Colossian community and their their different obsessions, etc. And then he says, um, "Hold fast to the head." Who's the head? It's like hold on to him. Really, be stuck to him. And um, what will the result be? He says, "When we, as the body, hold on to Yeshua, we stay tight with him." we focus on our connection to Him as the head and our personal rapport with Him, we're going to grow. The growth comes from Him. Well, that, that's my... In, in terms of like, uh, if, if, we were to, if I were to have a church growth philosophy, that's my church growth philosophy right there. Our job as the body is to focus on our relationship to the Master and we are going to grow qualitatively. We're going to grow in the quality of our relationship with Him and we're also going to grow quantitatively. He's going to bring people to us. He's going to send us to people. And He's going to bring them to Himself as He desires. So that, that's, um, on a very practical note, let's, uh, let's finish our, our, uh, our discussion with some of these people in the Colossian congregation there. It's 1240. Um, I can read you a page about atomic physics or not. It's up to you. <laughs> Um, it's about several things. Quarks, gluons, protons, neutrons. Par you guys want to hear, hear about particle physics for about five minutes? Okay, just for fun. We'll finish with that. Maybe th these are some of the things that Paul would have um, been d in discussion with Philip the philosopher about in terms of uh, cos cosmology. And um, Okay, this is, this is um, from Wikipedia. Uh, the ultimate and infallible source of truth. Everything you read on Wikipedia is true, of course. You don't need to go any farther than Wikipedia to get your facts. But um, th this is primarily from an article on strong interaction. If you want to read about like a... Uh, you know, and it, it's basically focused on the question of what is it that holds the atom together? How come every atom in the cosmos doesn't fly apart? I'll just read it to you. In particle physics, the strong interaction, also called the strong force, strong nuclear force, or color force, the strong interaction is one of the four fundamental interactions of nature, the others being electromagnetism, the weak interaction, and gravitation. As with the other, as with the other fundamental interactions, it's a non-contact force. At atomic scale, it's about a hundred times stronger than electromagnetism, which in turn is um, orders of magnitude stronger than the weak force interaction and gravitation. 
The strong interaction is observable in two areas. On the larger scale, okay, so the strong interaction is what holds the nucleus of an atom together, right? On a larger scale, it's the force that binds protons and neutrons together to form the nucleus of an atom. On the smaller scale, it's also the force that holds quarks and gluons together to form the proton, the neutron, and other particles. In the context of binding protons and neutrons together to form atoms, the strong interaction is called the nuclear force, or residual strong force. In this case, it's the residuum of the strong interaction between the quarks that makes up the protons and neutrons. As such, the residual strong interaction obeys a quite different distance-dependent behavior between nucleons when it is acting to bind quarks within nucleons. I'll I'll get back to that in just a second, because there's something very cool about that. A little history for you. Before the 1970s, physicists were uncertain about the binding mechanism of the atomic nucleus. It was known that the nucleus was composed of protons and neutrons, and that protons possessed positive electrical charge, while neutrons were electrically neutral. However, these facts seem to contradict one another. Hmm, everybody stroke your beard and say, hmm. By physical understanding at that time, positive charges would repel one another and the nucleus should therefore fly apart. However, this was never observed. New physics was needed to explain this phenomenon. A stronger attractive force was postulated to explain how the atomic nucleus was bound together despite the proton's mutual electromagnetic repulsion. This hypothesized force was called the strong force, which was believed to be a fundamental force that acted on the nucleons, the protons and neutrons that make up the nucleus. So did you get that? The hypothesized force that holds together the the protons and neutrons in the nucleus of an atom is called the strong force. Experiments suggested that this force bound protons and neutrons together with equal strength. Here here are a couple details on that for you to finish that idea. The word strong... Yeah, the word strong is used since the strong interaction is the strongest of the four fundamental forces. Its strength is a hundred times that of the electromagnetic force. What that means is it's some one with 14 zeros after it times as great as that of the weak force. Or, to put that in 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 a context that we'll understand, it's about one with 40 zeros after it's stronger than gravity. So you know the force of gravity? It's, I, I'm stuck. I'm stuck to this chair right now. I can, you know, I can jump, but it just yanks me right down. The strong force is approximately one with 40 zeros after it's stronger than that. That's what, that's what they postulate. That holds the, the, the nucleus of an atom together. The strong force acts between quarks. Unlike all other forces, electromagnetic, weak, and gravitational, the strong force, get this, doesn't diminish in strength with increasing distance. So, you know, gravity, as you know, decreases in strength with increasing distance. So the farther you go from the Earth, the less gravity you feel. The Moon is a very far distance from the Earth, and as a result, it doesn't exert very strong gravitational pull on objects on the Earth, but it does exert a certain pull, as is evident in the tides. You know, the ocean's tides happen because of the gravitational force of the Moon. What this is saying is, this strong force is is one with... 40 zeros after it's stronger than gravity, and its power isn't diminished by distance. 
After a limiting distance about the size of a hadron has been reached, everybody say hadron. Now that's a cool word. Drop that word in a conversation sometime. It remains at a strength of about 10,000 newtons, no matter how much further the distance between the quarks. Want to know how many 10,000 newtons is? About the weight of a one metric ton mass on the surface of the Earth. So get that. The force that holds the nucleus of an atom together, they estimate, is about the equivalent of a one ton mass. It takes like a pow the power of one ton to hold that little atom together. Uh, that, 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 so, okay, so some of this is hypothetical, right? Some of this is postulated, but that's how far physics have come so far on a subatomic level. That blows me away. What that tells me is there's a very powerful force that they haven't yet been able to put their finger on that isn't diminished by distance. In other words, it transcends, it transcends physical limitations, geographical boundaries, and it holds the nucleus of the atom together. Like it holds the universe together on an, on an, on an atomic scale. Could it be that that's the word of God? through which the atoms were, every atom in the universe was created? Could it be that Yeshua, as the word of Elohim, is actually the strong force that holds the atoms together? Could it be that Paul, in writing in the eternal spirit, like, that generated all cosmological understanding and all physics? Could it be that writing in that spirit, he was writing about that on a level he didn't even understand, in saying that, the cosmos on an atomic level weren't only generated through a person named Yeshua, the cosmos are held together in a person named Yeshua. Wow. And you know what? That's what holds us together as, as a community too. I mean, really, we're, we're all like, just, just to make it practical, because that was, that was too far out there for maybe in general. We have to make things practical. We as a community, we're like a bunch of protons and neutrons and electrons and we all have energy and we all have... We're like bouncing all over the place, right? Especially if you're hyper like me. We're bouncing all over the place. And you know what? If it wasn't for Yeshua as the glue that holds us together as communities, we would be spattered all over Prince Albert. We'd be all over the place. We would not be together, eh? So let's, let's leave it on that practical note. Yeshua pulled us together. He's our atomic glue and we love him for it. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you in your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. 
That way, we'll all be in it together, and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.